Does what we do at work matter? How do we go from being defined by what we do to having our work become an expression of who we are? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest with us on the show today is Barry Rowan, who's here to talk about his new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, and it's called The Spiritual Art of Business, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. And this is one that's right up my street because I spent a lot of my um, working life thinking about these sorts of things and trying to apply them. Barry is a Harvard Business School graduate who spent his entire career serving in C-suite roles and if you don't know what a C-suite role is, hint, the C stands for chief. He's been instrumental in building and transforming eight businesses, primarily in the technology and communication sectors, with one selling for $10 billion. His leadership experience spans both private and public companies, including GoGo, Vonage, Nextel Partners and Flute Corporation. Barry serves on both for-profit and non-profit boards, mentors young leaders and leads international study trips. And I quote, Deeply immersed in scripture and the classic spiritual writers, Barry is deeply committed to contemplation and prayer, which led him to complete a month-long silent retreat immediately following his retirement from a full-time executive career. His friends have dubbed him a corporate mystic. End of quote. Well, if that isn't an intro for an interview, I don't know what is. Barry, the corporate <laughs> mystic, if I may call you that. Sir, Good. Bo- hello to you from the States. Thanks so much, Brent. It's great to be with you and all of your listeners in New Zealand and around the world. Oh, it's an honor for me to talk to you and to um, glean something from your a massive life experience. Now, you begin your book by describing how you, ex- I love the start of it. you exploded in tears one day, you write, a steely will and a deep longing for God had lived under a fragile treaty within me since my earliest years. Now, Barry, what was the deep longing for God and why had it lived under a fragile treaty? Well, yes, it's absolutely the case. I'll give you two stories that illustrate both sides of the uh, of the situation that I had to live in treaty with each other. So when I was five years old, I had two ambitions in life. One was to be bald like my dad because I thought it was cool. Uh, and secondly, <laughs> and I'm making progress on that one. But We uh, both secondly, are, brother. We both are. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to be a priest uh, because I... As I saw them, they were the people who seemed to know God and had the opportunity to tell people about God. And, and even during my elementary school years in sixth grade, I started going to Mass every day because I just had this deep, deep yearning for God. On the other hand, I had this steely, uh, strong will. In fact, uh, my mother and father were both veterinarians. And my mom said to me, get this, when I was five years old, we grew up on a ranch in Idaho in the States. And she said, Barry, if you ever want to start smoking, please let me know, but just don't go burn the barn down. So when I was uh, five, and so when I was six, I did actually smoke for a while, but I quit when I was six. Um, uh, when I was six years old, my friend and I uh, from first grade decided that we would like to start smoking cigarettes. So I invited him over to smoke cigarettes and watch cartoons on a Saturday morning. And I smoked six unfiltered Chesterfields in a row, turned green, blew my tits, and that was the end of my smoking career. But you can just see the sense of this longing for God juxtaposed with this strong will. and. And I realized that, yes, those two dimensions of my persona had to live together under this fragile pity those many years. Yes, and you write that you looked for God through the fog. Now, presumably this wasn't while you were smoking all those cigarettes, but <laughs> how did you find God through the fog? Well, I uh, went through my life, went to undergraduate and went to, to business school, as you highlighted in the intro. And after business school, 
I joined a startup company and it was going very well. It turned out to be one of the fastest growing companies in the US, 110th fastest growing company. And, and I started as the chief financial officer, got kicked upstairs to be president. And, and yet I just had this deep uh, ache within me. And I, as I describe in the book, climbed up on this rock above a camp in Colorado and just started weeping. And it was the serenity of that environment stood in such contrast to the turmoil within me. And I was just sick and tired of living this divided life that in retrospect, as you can see, resided within me all those years. And I, I didn't even know if God was part of the question, let alone part of the answer. But I, I just was attacked by these questions about why am I alive and by what measure will I judge the success of my life and why does any of this matter? So over the next six months, I read 16 books. I stopped going to church because I thought it was hypocritical to worship a God that I was no longer sure existed. And God had to just take me down to bedrock. And uh, ultimately I concluded, as the lawyers would say, based on the preponderance of the evidence, I think it's much more likely than not that God exists. And so I pushed all the chips out onto that square that said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna bet my life that you exist. And then secondly, the question arose, well, what about Jesus? And concluded that he is who he says he is, or he's a raging lunatic with nothing in between. And if, if he is who he says he is, we need to take him seriously. And and one of, and any of you who wants to be my disciple uh, has to give up everything he has in order to do that. And so, so, and if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So I said, I have to take that command seriously. And so it was a call to surrender for me. And on a run around the lake by our house, just before I was 30, I said, Lord, I, I give up. And uh, it was basically with heel marks in the sand that I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. You and many others, including myself, I suspect. How, how did knowing God or coming to know God bring meaning to your work? Because you, you write about your struggle to find or your crisis to find meaning in your work over the years. How did knowing God bring meaning to your working life? Well, what I thought was a crisis over meaning and work, and it was, uh, was not the place God wanted to start with me. He had to provide a context of purpose in life in order to then delve into the question of meaning and work. So even after I surrendered my life to Christ, it still didn't answer those questions. And I would spend the next eight years in writing 350 pages in my journal, mostly in the middle of the night, wrestling with this question. And I realized that I had just been thinking about work all wrong, and I would describe it as God having to take me through a, a succession of paradigm shifts. I was just thinking about work all wrong. And, and uh, a couple of those that were central is one was I was looking at life from the outside in instead of the inside out. I thought if I just get the right job, somehow I'll be filled up. And, and, uh, and then realized, no, the real way that we're designed to live our lives is, is from the inside out with uh, Christ at the center and in Colossians, as, as Paul describes, it's the mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages as Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I began to see that, um, that we are called to become less and God become more in us, as John the Baptist described. And as we become less and he becomes more, the spirit of the living in Christ in us finds expression in all we do. So, so the corollary to that was I was trying to derive meaning from my work instead of bringing meaning to the work. And particularly in, in professions like business, where there's less of what you could call intrinsic meaning in the work, the onus is on us evermore to bring the meaning to the work. So if you're, if you're a pastor, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, uh, even if you're a teacher, it's a pretty clear about the purpose of our work. It's, it's embedded in what we do. But if it's in business and the ostensible reason is to make money, that somehow is not the sort of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. So, 
So for me, I realized, oh, that it's Yonasan has to bring meaning to the work. And the ultimate source of meaning is to see that work as seen through the eyes of God. And over time, as as God took me through these paradigm shifts, I began to realize these things and that, you know, the world screams at us to say we are what we do. And the deeper truth is not that, but what we do is an expression of who we are. So just at a cocktail party, hello, my name is Barry Rowan. I'm the CEO of XYZ Company. And it, the, the culture just defines us in that way. So so as I began to see that, a working definite a job definition emerged for me, which was to contribute to a better society as seen through the eyes of God. And if I'm called to business, then what is the role of business that is distinctive uh, in, in serving society? And so it's things like responsible value creation that business does. It's um, serving customers. When we're serving customers, we're serving God, literally, because he resides in, in all of us as people. And it's creating an environment for employees that enables us all to grow into the full expression of ourselves and being a good corporate citizen. So when I began to see that, I could then make the connection between here's what I'm doing in this moment and my purpose in life. Yes, many questions I could ask you. Where where to from here? I wonder why it is as Christians that we so often struggle to relate our working world to our spiritual life. Well, there are, I think, many reasons for that. Um, One is, I think, the the culture creates what I believe to be a completely artificial distinction between the sacred and the secular. To me, there's a seamlessness to the kingdom of God. Everything is under the lordship of Christ. And so we are trying to bridge that or say we're living in one world and not in the other world. And we have a Sunday life and a Monday life. And I think the way we're really designed is to live an integrated life, you know, one life under God. And when we, we do see it that way, I think that begins to resolve things. So so for me, it's not like ordering our lives, God first, family, society, for example, but it's it's more like a, a series of concentric circles with Christ in the middle. And I, so Christ in the middle, then family, then society. And I actually organized my computer files that way because, okay, Lord, I, I need to get time with you. So I pray one to two hours a day, for example. And then, and that finds expression in, in the love of my wife, who we've been married for 42 years and the love of our, our two sons and then out into the world. So so I think it's a natural question that we have that is exacerbated by this artificial distinction between the sacred and the secular. Uh, secular. Uh, and then it's, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, for me, I, it was very hard to make those connections. And I think about the challenge in kind of two dimensions. There's a vertical challenge, which is congruence. How do I connect what I'm doing in this moment to my purpose in life? And what, how does that connect it? How is that congruent? And there's a sort of horizontal dimension to it, which is balance. How much time do I spend at work with my family, you know, time alone, um, and those kinds of things. And for me, the, the question of congruence was much harder to answer. And that's a big part of what this book is about. It's mm-hmm. a reflection of my struggle with those questions. And many people struggle with those questions. Balance is also a big question, but uh, and both of them need to be addressed fairly comprehensively over time if we're going to live a holistic life under Christ. But the good news is there are answers and there's a way to live this way in a way that can be animating to our work lives. Coming to this understanding, the last 25 years were spent really with an energy that I didn't have before. Yes, and it's very clear from reading your book and um, folk need to get it. So if you're listening, it's it's full of of useful and helpful advice and uh, 
experience of many, many years. How did you bring your Christian faith into business, Barry? For example, I mean, you write about business meetings, and one particular business meeting sticks in my mind, uh, which was a meeting, I think, between a Japanese, some Japanese folk and some American folk. Now, tell us about that. Yeah, what I, I've come to realize over time is that God's will and his word is embedded in every moment of our lives, if we have the eyes to see it. And so he's very relevant. And to just pick up on your example in Japan, I was there uh, one of my first trips to Japan and we were having a budgeting meeting and it was a clash of cultures where the, the company was growing very fast and the Japanese leadership wanted to be very conservative in the way they were budgeting. And so they didn't want to uh, miss their numbers because Japan operates in many ways around a culture of shame and you don't want to get into that place. And whereas, you know, the American contingent that came in as a senior leadership team said, you're being too conservative. <laughs> and, you know, what tr what should have been a constructive budget meeting turned into this just really acrimonious conversation. And, and it really bothered me. And that night I was just reading the scripture and there's a description about Paul, about um, if we can keep from devouring ourselves. And I thought, what a relevant thing. You know, the, God's word is living, it's alive and active, and it meets us in that place. So for me, it was, how could we have done that meeting differently without devouring ourselves? How could we have been more respectful of the differences in culture uh, and, and found some common ground and been able to operate more as human beings trying to achieve the same objectives. So, so that's a, you know, a small example of where God's, God's will is embedded in every, every moment. He would have us, you know, come together as people to achieve common objectives, but out of a sense of mutual respect. Yes, Japanese are wonderful people. I've never been to Japan. I have a friend who travels frequently to Japan, and he describes some of the ways that the, the society works. It fascinates me. Extending what we've been talking about, really, forgiveness. You write about some of the ways that you've learned for, to forgive in business. Now, business, business, the business world doesn't seem to me to be a place where forgiveness comes naturally. <laughs> how, how on earth did you learn to extend forgiveness in your business relationships? Yeah, well, if we could zoom out on that for a second, I would just say that uh, my career has been the crucible for the formation of my soul. And not because it's easy, but because it's so hard. And that uh, God uses our work to do his work in us. And so as we, as we see it through that lens, we can see that there are always opportunities for forgiveness in business. And you know, I worked in some very challenging situations. I was involved, as you mentioned, in building or turning around eight businesses, and some of them were extremely challenging. Um, and there are always different points of view in that. And I worked with some very, very difficult people. So for me, uh, one of the opportunities for forgiveness was how to forgive those people that I found myself on the very opposite side of issues with. And and I realized that, again, God's word is so relevant. You know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We tend to think of, oh, persecution is what happens to the saints when they're being grilled and killed, you know, in the, in the early days of the church. Well, no, is it not persecution when um, we find ourselves being attacked by zinger emails, for example, from a coworker, from a boss, and that cuts to the quick? Also. So it's a huge opportunity for forgiveness and you know, also forgiving ourselves. Yes, I mean, how do you deal with, you mentioned difficult people. I mean, we've all dealt with difficult people. How, how do you, as a Christian on a daily basis, I, I had to do it for, for years. How do, you, how do you extend the principles of Christian forgiveness practically in a boardroom or in a, in a management situation? It can be very difficult to do it sometimes. 
Yeah, you know, forgiveness is very difficult, and ultimately, it needs to be done supernaturally. And again, I think of it about uh, from the inside out. So, as we think about, I uh, think two examples of this. So, as we as we become less and Christ becomes more, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in the world, we realize that the Jesus in us loves the least of these in us. And you know, we're very involved, for example, as a family helping the poor in Central America, and. And uh, you think of those as the least of these, but the least of these exist within us and they exist within every person. So, so when Jesus says to love our neighbor as ourselves, well, how do I do that? Well, as I love myself, it's to allow the Christ in me to love me with an unconditional love. And by that, he will bring me into this love itself. You know, he literally transforms the substance of our being from selfishness to selflessness. So as we experience that love of Christ in us, for us, it brings us into this place of renewal and transformation. So to love our neighbor as ourselves, I cannot do it with the people who are harsh and frankly, um, who have wounded us because woundedness creates this scar tissue and creates this hardness of heart. And as Ezekiel says, I want to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And so this heart of stone is manufactured by the, the woundedness uh, in this world as the sin in others interacts with the sin in us. And so the way to love my neighbors myself is to allow the Jesus in me to love the, uh, to love the people who have created this um, woundedness in me. And, and he replaces our heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And as I've, as I've grown in that over time, that he grows our capacity for love. And it doesn't mean we roll over and play dead. You know, Jesus himself has a very strong spine, as we see, but it's all done out of love. And so so for me, that's why my business career has been so formative. And if our ultimate call is to love, when do we learn to love the most? It's when it's the hardest to love. And so I have found myself, you know, immersing myself in those situations. And because if we embrace the pain, God gives purpose to the pain and that he will form us into more complete human beings as we submit ourselves to the challenges that confront us. Mm. Uh, so many more questions I'd like to ask. How, uh, let's talk about how you found ways you found God personally comforting you. I mean, you've had some very anxious moments in business. You're dealing with billions of dollars, millions of dollars worth of deals. It must have caused you to lie awake at night. And um, I mean, we've all done that, worrying about about things, haven't we, with, with business. How have you found God personally comforting you in those anxious times? Well, it it comes from, I think, starting to get to know him. And as we come to know him, we will come to love him. And you know, Jesus defines what is eternal life for us in John 17 is this is eternal life, colon, you know, to come to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so to know God is to come to uh, fall in love with him and to believe him and take him at his word. So when he says things, I am with you always, uh, even to the ends of the age, that is a literal truth. So, so, uh, and part of the way I've come to uh, find peace in that is to be alone with him because solitude is a place where I learn that I am not alone. I really experience God as loving us, loving me intimately, that he permeates uh, every empty space within my being. He occupies us and that you know, perfect love dries out fear. And, and it's one thing to be able to say those words, but it's another thing to be able to live them. And I had a friend uh, early in my career who said, you know, if it doesn't work for you, don't export it. <laughs> so I could say those words like, oh, 
perfect love cries out fear. Well, that's great, but I don't get it. I'm still living fearfully. And not that I don't, but I find that as I as my instincts change to turn first to God, that I would find my place in, in a, my peace I give you. And I give not as the world gives, but God gives us this peace. And so like, I'm not a great sleeper, particularly as I've gotten older. And so I've realized, you know, when I get up in the middle of the night, I just start reading the gospels and I, I just read them through uh, and I get quite a way through them because I'm up for, you know, an hour or two. And I just find that as I do that and as God transforms us by the renewing of our mind and he enters into us that his peace permeates us. And uh, for me, it's the only source of our fulfillment and um, he alone can fulfill our deepest longing. So it's a, it's a habit of the heart that develops over time. Mm. Uh, what, why did you take it? I want to just spend the last few minutes of the interview talking about uh, some of your spiritual experience. Why did you take a purposeful pause in your career at, when you were 50? What happened at age 50 that made you want to take a break? Well, I had worked flat out for 25 years and, and I, I, we had sold the business for $10 billion, as I mentioned. And I, I thought, I just need to take a purposeful pause. And the theme of that pause well, I, was like a rest in music. You know, um, the theme was don't slur the rest. Like our kids took piano lessons. And if you've ever had a six-year-old play the piano, there is no rest, right? Just, and there's there's no tempo. And and great musicians, and I'm not a great musician, but I love great music. The, the rest is what gives richness to the music. And I just, Lynn and I just felt like we want to not slur the rest. We want to let God breathe into this time. And and I didn't know if I would go back to work. I was on six boards. Uh, I had a list of 27 people. If they called, I'd have a cup of coffee with them or lunch. Uh, I was very busy. Um, but after a couple of years, Lynn and I looked at each other over dinner going to visit our son in college. And we said, you know, I think I should go back to work. And I don't think it was totally to get me out of the house. <laughs> it was because I felt we both felt so strongly about the things we're talking about here, about the power of business to contribute to society. And I had lots of energy and still do. It's like, no. So I went back to work and took the most challenging job I could find, which was a massive turnaround uh, at a public company. The company had gone public at 17. The stock skidded to 42 cents a share. They were losing $50 million a year. It was a financial, operational, strategic, and reputational turnaround. And I thought, I want to see if these principles uh, and Jesus himself can stand up to the heat of the kitchen. And so that's why, that's why I took the pause, and that's, why, that's how the pause ended. Mm -hmm. What have you personally learned from the classic spiritual writers? Because you write about them in the book. Yeah, I, well, my wife calls them my dead friends. And uh, I, <laughs> I'm an avid reader, and uh, I really view them as the community of a communion of saints. They are, yes. In fact, a number of years ago, I uh, read this quote from C.S. Lewis. It said, I am the product of endless books. And I realized, oh, so am I. And I realized I underappreciated the role of authors in my life. So I went to my bookshelf, and as best I could remember, I ordered these books in the, in the order that I read them. And of course, I put them in an Excel spreadsheet in that order. And it was amazing. It was a proxy for my spiritual journey, starting with mere Christianity, going through a book called The Road Left Traveled that taught me about, oh, there's such a thing as the interior life. And it grew more and more into the mystics of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Jean-Pierre de Cassade. And there were, you know, about 150 of them that what I would describe as, as spiritually impactful books. And now it's over 200. But, but they have a, the scripture for me is by far the place where I connect with God the most, but I also connect with them through the perspective of of seeing people's journeys. You know, we see our stories and the stories of others. 
And, you know, what is most deeply true for us individually is often most universally true for others. And so that's how and where I learn from these other folks who've gone before. Final question, Barry. Half hour's just about up. It has flown by as it always does. How do we transform or how can we transform the world through work? Big question, I know. Well, I think the starting point for me is surrendering to God, because as we give our lives to the Lord, uh, it gives him permission to do his work in us. And as he transforms us, he can transform the world through us. It is not we who are transforming the world. It is it is the spirit of the living God in us who transforms the world. So I, I think it starts by surrender. It continues by uh, finding time for solitude to let God really breathe into us and and to become less so that he can become more in us and pour himself out into the world. And, and my hope and literally my prayer is that as people are called to live fully for God in the world, they will nudge the world closer to him. And I know they will. And businesses will be run with a sense of dignity uh, and respect for individuals with a sense of excellence, but a holistic understanding of what success is. And we will become better people and the world will become a better place because the genius of God's design is that he accomplishes his work in our souls and in the world simultaneously, and he does it through the ordinary experience of our lives. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? Thank you so much, Barry. Barry Rowan and the new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is called The Spiritual Art of Business, Connecting the Daily with the Divine. So much more we could have talked about, Barry, but there we are. That's our half hour. Thank you so much for your time, sir, and thank you to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things. Barry, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you very much, Ben. I very much enjoyed our conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.